I have never done a series on Epiphany. This is the time of year in the church calendar that's called Epiphany. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means and why I think it's actually a really important time of the church calendar. Um, but we're starting this series called New Year, Same Promises. And the whole idea is that we change all the time and we set these New Year's resolutions for ourselves. We want to read less and eat more and we just want to be overall worse people in our lives because of the things that we decide to do or decide not to do. And every decision that we make is a character decision. It's building us in one way or another. It's revealing who we are. It's revealing who we aren't. And when Jesus came to this earth, he revealed the perfect image of who God is. The God of the Old Testament gets a lot of stuff thrown at him. He gets wars started in his name. He gets um, children killed in his name. Um, he feels that he's not there close enough to them. Uh, it looks like there's this structure of rigid rules. But everything that God is doing in the Old Testament is then revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And we are now in the season of Epiphany. And it comes from this Greek word that means to show or to appear. Um, and it means we might think of it sort of like as a physical manifestation we use the word epiphany like, oh, I've just had a revelation. I've just, I've just thought of something that was never there before. But the Greek word for epiphany actually has a deeper sense than just to reveal or to show oneself. And epiphany is the idea that we are celebrating the appearance of Christ. So much of the time that we spend is in Advent and that preparation and that waiting. And then Christmas is here and the child is born. And then we are preparing ourselves for Easter and what comes next in the life of Christ. But we skip over this really important part. The part that actually Jesus says he came to do in the first place. Which is to proclaim the good news to the poor and the oppressed. And to heal the sick and broken hearted. And to forgive the sins of those people. To make them righteous again. Now we know that the forgiveness of those sins happens as Jesus declares that over their lives. The triumph over death comes in that form as well. In the resurrection. But what about that proclaiming of the good news to the poor and the oppressed? What about the healing of the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf? We skip right over that part. An epiphany is a great moment for us to slow down and celebrate the appearance of Christ, to celebrate the physical manifestation of Christ here on earth. Because the deeper sense of what epiphany means, where we take it to another spot, it actually means to provide a light to, to shine on. And in two places today, in Isaiah and in Matthew, and Matthew is quoting from Isaiah, a light has come. A great light has come. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And see, Christ is not something that we discovered, but rather Christ's unique means is discovering us through his appearance. 
God is the one searching us out. God is the one pursuing us. And so each week we're going to unpack in the form of Jesus and what he has come to do, what he has come to reveal in his appearance, what he has come to shine a light on. is the promises that God has made from the beginning of the pages of Genesis. And each week we're going to reveal these promises and what it stands for. And this week we're going to discover the promise of pursuit. How Jesus is there pursuing after us. And we were sitting in the dark and groping around trying to find God. And we didn't just happen upon him. God found us. God pursues us in his great grace He has found us. And so this great light has dawned, this great man of Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect image of God. And so even John in his gospel, his first chapter, that great, um, the great stirringness of John 1, 1 through 14, where he talks about the light being born, and here it is on earth. He comes to live among us. He starts his gospel talking about people who have sat in darkness, have seen a great light. And that's probably a good way to characterize our search as well. We search, but our search is little more than just groping about in the darkness. So we realize then that the first Christmas, and and every Christmas there, after is not a story about how we just happened to find God, how the shepherds were just walking through town one day and, oh, there is God. The angels point us in the direction. God makes sure that we find Jesus because he is a God that wants to be known. He is a God that pursues us. It's an amazing account of how God has found us. The people who sat in darkness. This comes from Isaiah, and we read that this morning, Isaiah 9. And the Isaiah passage, it seems to refer to those people who were living and exiled into Assyria at the time. They were the ones to whom God was bringing the light. This is what the prophecy foretold, that you were living in darkness, you were living in a place that was not your own, you were living in a place that you were not used to, you were living in exile not far away from your home. God was going to bring you back into that. And so now, with Jesus on the move, living in Nephtali and Zebulun, his move into Capernaum and the surrounding areas of Galilee, And as the gospel later spreads and reaches, we see that even though the whole world who is now going to receive light, it is in the person of Jesus, that this prophecy has now changed, that it's not just God doing this thing with light, but it is God entering into the lives of his people in the form of Jesus. And that presence that's there begins to open eyes and shine a light on those who have been exiled, the people who have lived in darkness, the people who have wandered so far from God, the people who were indeed lost. Now, the great Saint Augustine, he opens his first book of the Confessions 
with a prayer and a statement that our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And it would seem that the four of the men, the first disciples, it would seem that those four were already in a worthy vocation, but they had restlessness in their hearts. They had these restless hearts that were driving them to seek something better. And they just don't stumble upon it. And this is the same thing that happens in our world, that we feel restless, we feel in our hearts that there's something bigger, there's something better, there's something that we ought to be focused on, and then we just dive into our work, or we dive into our families, or we dive into service, or we, den- we deny our feelings or our thoughts. And we start to say that these things can be the answer to what's caused us pain. These things can drive us to seek God and to see the things in our lives that are missing. And I think a lot like those fishermen who wanted to bury themselves into their work, they thought that maybe if they could just get that next big catch, if they could just find that one next thing that they were chasing, that everything would feel better, and yet their hearts trembled in them in restlessness because they did not have the light. They were still living in darkness. And when they heard Jesus call to them, they could do nothing else but leave everything behind and follow. Now, conventional rabbis, rabbi is just a Jewish word that means teacher. And so conventional rabbis, of which Jesus was not a conventional rabbi, he was a rabbi, he wasn't conventional. They didn't call disciples. You didn't go out and beat the bushes. You didn't, it was considered bad form if you were out asking people to become your disciple. It meant your, your teaching was not strong enough. It meant you were not charismatic. It meant that you did not have much to offer. If your teaching wasn't drawing people in, if you weren't charismatic enough to draw people in, then it was just a waste of time. How little has changed when we're so enthralled by mega churches and charismatic pastors who have this cult-like following that we are sucked in by that teaching, by, by that charismatic teaching and, and preaching. It's not the weight of their words, but it's who they are and who they project themselves to be. If you can't get people there on that basis, then what is your call? What is your fame? What do you have to offer me. I have nothing as a pastor to offer you except the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And I will preach that forever. And we don't have anything flashy here. We don't have anything fancy here. But we have Jesus. And when we hear the call of Jesus in our lives to come and follow, we leave everything behind and follow. It was your teaching that was meant to call people into you, not your voice. And yet we know his voice. He knows our names, as we sang about this morning. It seems like the main requirement to be found by God, according to Jesus, is to be lost. 
If you're lost, Jesus comes looking for you. God pursues you. That is his promise. Jesus does not sit back and wait for people to stumble upon him. He reaches out and he goes forth. He calls them to come, follow me, get out of your boat, leave your nets behind, leave your father behind and come follow me. And this bears the imprint of all the classic call stories, especially the template of Elijah calling Elisha in 1 Kings. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament where Elisha is out plowing the fields and Elijah's walking by and he sees him and he says, this is the next great prophet of Israel and he calls Elisha and Elisha leaves his family behind. Only first he breaks down the plow and he burns it and he roasts all the oxen that were pulling the plow and then he goes to say goodbye to his family and he leaves them because God calls him. And so these people watching this call, they would know that he was traveling and discovers and sees others working and calls them from their work. The one called then follows and comes after. They would have recognized that this was a true prophet in the same way that Elijah and Elisha had come before him. This is the same idea. The main requirement to be found by God is to be lost. And we know this because Jesus told these stories about these shepherds that was so insane to those listening. That if you have a flock of 99 and you lose one sheep, you will go and beat every bush trying to find that one sheep that's lost. That's insane. Why would you leave 99 alone to find the one lost sheep? Or there was a woman who loses a coin in her house and she tears it apart every room looking for one lost coin. Because it seems like the main requirement to be found by God is to be lost. God pursues lost people. He pursues you and me because we've been living in darkness and even though we've taken a step in that light, it has not illuminated everything. It has not shined where it needs to shine. And so, though it's not true to say that Jesus, it's not untrue to say that Jesus came to earth to die, it is more true to the Gospels to say that he came first to live. He came to announce, invite sinners into, proclaim the demands of, and in the end, bring in God's kingdom. I think we really need to be reminded in this season that the call of Jesus in this text is not to a future salvation, but it is a call to action. It is an active call to fish for people. Because isn't it amazing that as God pursues us, he calls us into that and says, listen, I'm pursuing you, and I want you now to pursue others. Because see, the old model of the church, the old idea was that I'm going to get a pastor to save you. I'm going to bring you to church and that's going to save you and you're going to be illuminated by God's truth because you're going to be impressed with the things that happen in church. Jesus did not say, follow me to church. 
He said, follow me. And as we are called to follow Christ in every step that he takes, in every moment moving more toward God and our righteousness, we are asking the people around us to do the same thing. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so I look here as a pastor, and I'm not trying to be fancy. I'm not trying to do big things. All I'm saying every single week is follow me as I follow Christ. That is our action today. I'm not trying to get you into heaven. I'm not trying to get you into the country club. I'm not trying to give you great coffee. I'm trying to get you to follow Christ The Bible is not so much a long record of our search for God, but rather it is an amazing account of the extraordinary lengths to which God will go to search for us. You notice it coming out of Christmas. That's why Epiphany is so important out of Christmas because hardly anyone in any of those stories of Christmas was looking for God. Why would they? They weren't searching for something more meaningful in their lives. They were not looking for some way to find a deeper significance. So in our few moments that we have left together, I want to break down these two things that Jesus says. First, he says, repent. The mission of the church, which continues that of Jesus and his disciples, runs on this same realization. It kind of seems backwards. It, it almost seems like we're giving them the heartbreaking news first, that you must repent, you must turn from the world and follow me. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. The church still bears witness to the reality of God's rule first in repentance, turning away from the world's ways toward God. The repentance to which Jesus calls, in other words, happens as much in response to the nature of God's presence and power as it does as anticipating of God's coming. And so often the church has called people to repentance without making clear the vision of the kingdom of God. We want you to be sickened by your Sins. We want to preach it every week and say, you're dirty, you're so far away from God, and yet we don't want to give the vision of what the kingdom of God looks like after that. Here is the world. Turn away from the world. Well, what am I turning toward? Well, the kingdom of God, of course. Now show me that. Follow me as I follow Christ. The kingdom has been presented as an equivalent of going to heaven after you die, rather than what it is, an active presence and rule of God in your life, in the world, and in all of creation. And would it shock you to learn that the church, as Christ's body, is to model the kingdom? We as a church are to give the people of the world a clear vision of what life with God is like. The values and visions and passion of God's kingdom 
are to take life in our local church so that people see the benefits. This vision lived out in not just our lives, but in the church, in the community, provides the motivation to fulfill the call to repent. We say, turn from the world, turn toward this, do this thing with us. Yeah, I just don't, I just don't see it. I just don't believe in your God. I, I just don't think that there's some magical wizard up there living in the clouds doing his thing. Okay, that's fine. But I want you to see what things could be like. I want you to see the beautiful picture that Jesus intended when he planted the church. When he said, Peter, I want you to take these people with you, and I want them to follow you as you follow me. <clears throat> because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, is what John the Baptist said in the beginning. Matthew signals the essential continuity and consistency of the ministries of John and Jesus. But there is a significant difference. When John says the kingdom is near, he means near but not quite here yet. But when Jesus says it, he says near, here, at hand, it has come in the form of Jesus. See, John is setting expectations, but Jesus is calling now to participation. Jesus is not setting expectations. Jesus is not saying, well, let's wait just a little bit longer. Let's see if someone better comes along and sets the tone. Let's see if there's another Jesus. Let's see if there's another Messiah. Let's see if there's another Christ that you prefer over me who can set the tone. Jesus' ministry of gathering and healing both works toward and embodies the realization of God's kingdom. Jesus' calling disciples to follow him shows that God's plan continues to work itself out in all of human history. Because as Jesus has called his disciples, then we call others to follow him as we follow him. And so he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he also says, come, follow me. No more important words were spoken than follow me. Because God searches us out, and to respond to that call is one of the most holy things that we can do in our lives. In Hebrew, the Jews always believed that the most holy word was Yahweh, the name of God himself. But the second holiest word is the Hebrew word Hanine, which translated to English is, here I am. When God looks over his kingdom and he wants someone to go and speak for him, who should I send? Isaiah says, Hanine, here I am, send me, I'm ready. God seeks us out because we are lost. And the greatest thing that we can do in our lives and in the lives of the people around us is to say, here I am. Send me. Let me be an active participant in your kingdom. 
I don't want to do this thing where I just wait for something better to come along. Send me, God. Let me pursue after others. Let you pursue after me. Jesus summons with irresistible authority. And we respond with radical obedience. Three things I want you to notice about their call. They immediately follow him, seemingly with no qualifications and no questions asked. It wasn't, yes, but who are you actually? Yes, but why should I trust you? Oh, I understand that you know my name. I understand that you've called me and I recognize your voice as something that I've been waiting for. But who are you exactly? There was no waiting. It was immediately they stood up and got out of their boats. They left their net behind and they followed him. They leave their boats and they leave their nets, which means they leave their profession. This lucrative business of fishing, this was a fishing area. They leave it behind to walk after Jesus. You know what I think is really funny about the disciples? is if you go to the end of the story and they're sitting there uh, the days after Jesus has been killed and he's risen and they can't find the body, you know what they do? They go back out and they fish. And Jesus finds them again doing the same thing that he called them away from. He calls them out of the boat a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And he says, come and follow me. Leave this thing behind. You don't have to worry about being provided for. You don't have to worry about where your meal's going to come from. You don't have to worry about those things because now you're in my house. I've called you and now you're good to go. There's no suggestion of how they'll be provided for, and there's no promise that they'll get promoted in their job, that they'll become manager or they'll become supervisor over all these other little disciples. They leave immediately. They leave their profession. And then there's an interesting note. Their father was sitting there in the boat as well. So they left their families behind. Now, this was a radical call to these disciples because not every disciple walked along the road with Jesus. There were these four and then later 12 and then probably two or three dozen walking with him along the road. But a majority of the disciples that Jesus had, he walked from town to town to preach and to teach them. And then they would stay there and they would share the gospel. They would share the words that Jesus had shared with them. We get this portrait on our head, the feeding of the 5,000. They all walked with Jesus down the road. No, Jesus came to them because God is a seeker. God is a pursuer. God is relentless. One final thing that I want us to focus on this morning. The reading from Matthew does not end with the disciples following Jesus, does it? Verse 23 reminds us what Jesus sets about doing. It's not just enough to follow Jesus. It's not just enough to walk down the road with him. It's not just enough to go from town to town and stand up for him when he's bullied. 
Jesus can take care of himself in a crowd, by the way. How many times does they slip out of the way when they go to arrest him? The reading ends by reminding us what Jesus sets about doing. As these four and others become his disciple, Jesus goes throughout Galilee teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. To understand whether the voice we are hearing is truly the voice of God, we have to examine the person behind the voice to see if the person is consistent with the God who is revealed to us in Scripture. It is this time of revealing. It is this time of illumination. It is this time that we come together and we celebrate what God is doing in our lives, what God has come to us as the perfect image of God standing in front of us saying, I see you, now come follow me. He pursues us. He loves us. He is relentless. And so therefore, if we are to mark that in our lives, if we are to live out the vision of Jesus in that promise, we too must pursue those around us.